Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. While it's still morning, let's go ahead and begin. So if you'll let the person you're talking to know, 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 Thessalonians 5. Really good to see you today. Uh, these are practical instructions that we're going to look at this morning um, the Christians that Paul wrote to, the first recipients of this letter, they didn't get much in the way of practical discipleship because Paul and his companions were in a hurry uh, to leave town. They were forced out. And so uh, quickly he turns around and writes back to them and, and talks about the complete change that's happened in Christ, that they've, they've changed from, uh, they've turned from idols to serve the living and true God. And even though we're living 2,000 years after these uh, instructions were given, they still have power uh, to change us as Christians, and they're still the life that we're called to live in this complete paradigm shift that we're living in. This is a, a set of instructions, and they have the weight of commands. We'll look at that in just a moment. Uh, but we might like them more if we realize that they're really here to help us as Christians to live uh, like people that are living Godward. Godward is toward God in the God direction. We want to live our lives that way. Uh, last time, the instructions were how to live with one another, and this time, you can see the focus. If you read the, the passage that we're going to look at today, we'll get as far as we can, you'll find that they're the instructions that are relating to how to live in relationship with God in the world, and we need to do that. Um, there are six commands. The first three are things that we should do, and then there are two things that we should avoid doing. Um, and then there's another instruction that's sort of positive on the end of that. These, uh, these verses are short that we're going to look at. Uh, they're easy to memorize. And when I was in sixth grade, I think this is probably true of most of the time I spent in elementary in a Christian school, we had to memorize a Bible verse every week. Anybody go to Christian school and you had to memorize Bible verses? All right. So we had to memorize Bible verses every week. And uh, the, the teacher's name was Miss Bellinger, Miss Bellinger. Some people called her, and uh, usually the verses that we had to memorize were assigned by the teacher, and so she would give us the verse, and then we would memorize it, and I think maybe on, on Wednesday, we would have to go out into the hall and tell her the Bible verse for memory. If we didn't get it right, we had to go back in the classroom and re, uh, relearn it until we got it right, and so that was part of our curriculum, and then one day, um, she made the mistake of uh, letting us pick our own Bible verse. So we all decided that we're going to do the shortest verse that we knew of. And um, I think her goal in this was that we were going to reach deep into the depths of our soul and pull out the verse that meant most to us. But we were immature and unsanctified kids who wanted to just get through the assignment. And so anybody want to guess what verse we picked? Jesus, John, John, what? 11.35, Jesus wept, yep, uh, and I think one of my friends said, just say, John, 11.35, Jesus wept, and so we all went through the line. I'm sure our teacher wasn't very happy with that. Two words, nine letters, but if we'd been speaking biblical Greek at the time, 
we would have picked 1 Thessalonians 5.16, which is shorter. 1 Thessalonians 5.16 says, rejoice always. Uh, John 11.35 in Greek is three words, because before a personal name, often you'll find a definite article, the. So this is weird to hear it, but when you, when you see it in the text, it's there. Uh, oftentimes, it's the Jesus. And so I, I don't know if you knew that or even care, but it's three words in, in Greek and um, 16 letters total. Whereas 1 Thessalonians 5.16 is two words and 14 letters. It's, uh, as far as I know, it's the shortest verse or shortest verse in the New Testament. None of that really matters because verse number, the verse numbering that we use came much later. And oftentimes, like so much later, like only 500 years have we really had Bible verses in the Bible. Did you know that? I mean, the verses were there. The numbers weren't, just so we're all clear. And so that's something that came later to help us to find our places. But before that, people just knew uh, scriptures. Chapters were a little bit earlier, but they weren't in the original either. In fact, um, I don't know if you know this or not, and let's just thank God for the fact that things are the way that they are now because in the old days, they wrote all the Greek letters in all caps without any spaces between the words. Can you imagine trying to <laughs> read your Bible that way? until You know, it's the, it's the line that starts with the letter Delta or whatever it may be, and you might figure it out that way, but now we can easily do that. But I wanted to get to the point that this is the verses that we're covering today. They're very short verses, and they're easy to memorize, and Paul's aim here is to know uh, for Christians to know how to live the fullest Christian life, um, it is, um, and it can be summarized with uh, the practice practicing a God-oriented life and don't resist the Holy Spirit. Why don't we, why don't we read it and then we'll we'll talk about it a little bit more here. Verse sixteen: Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not pre, uh, treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what's good. Reject every kind of evil. And then there's some encouragement about uh, what God's going to do in response. But, but let's talk this morning a little bit about this. The Spirit is in us, and He's working through us. Would you agree to that, that when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit enters in and begins to work the work of sanctification, and He's regenerating us, He's making us like Christ. You know God's goal for you. If you want to know God's ultimate will for you, it's this, is to conform you to the image of Christ. It's to make our character like his character. To, to, to as C.S. Lewis put it, create, uh, make us creatures fit for heaven. He wants to do that work in us. And so the Spirit is working in us if we put our faith in Christ. But there are patterns of living which need to do conform to our new life. And Patterns of living that are part of our old life that need to be done away with. We have a new nature and we've been forgiven, but there are habits that we have that need to be undone. Come on, is that true? Anybody found that to be true? And so um, we have to work with the Holy Spirit to see those things undone in our life. And so I'll talk about some of that in just a moment. But uh, when we put our faith in Christ, we conform to this new life. And so these are some of those things that we should do. And there is a beautiful Christian life to be had in following the instructions that we just read here. And um, the one teaching them to us, Paul, not me, displayed these better than anyone in the New Testament but Jesus, as far as I can tell. Okay, so when he says things like rejoice always, he was writing from prison to the Philippians and telling them to rejoice. 
Okay, He knew what it meant to be in hardship, and he knew how to find contentment even in the most difficult things of life. And so he's a man who practices what he preaches. We can trust these words, not only because Paul, who's a great preacher, said them, but because we believe they're inspired by the Holy Spirit as God's will for us. Amen? So we're not wasting our time on mere human philosophy today. We believe this to be directions sent from God through the, through the pen of the Apostle Paul. And so Paul tells us here to do something and uh, to do this, and they work then and they work now, but not, not merely as techniques, as if you're operating a, a vending machine. You know how a vending machine has a mechanism where if you put the right coin in it, and press the right button, then it pops out the thing that you want, okay? And we can't treat these things like techniques like that because when you're dealing with people, techniques don't always work the same way because we're dealing with real persons, right? And, and it, you realize that this Christian thing is not a matter of techniques and mechanisms. It's a relationship with God, and he's given us relational principles related to him. So we, when it's relationships and principles, we realize that relationships require more than formulas. Um, you can't, you can't, for example, you can't say something without meaning it. Um, like in, in uh, this call to give thanks in all things, you can't just say it without also putting your heart behind it. You know what I mean? Otherwise, it's a manipulation. and We don't want to ever do that with God. So you can't say things like, thank you, Jesus, and Spirit of God, you're welcome here. You don't get very far unless you really mean it. And so when we're talking about these these um, principles, that these practices even that God's calling us to, we're not talking about uh, techniques in order to get what we want. We're talking about the right way that the Christian life should be lived in relationship with God. Okay. Is everybody clear on that? That I'm not saying to you if you'll go home and do these things whether you want to or not, that it's just going to change you. Your heart has to be in it. Okay. Your heart has to be in this. And so the first thing uh, I want to talk about is this group of these first three commands. They are commands. They are imperatives. Um, you, we know that by the spelling of the verb, it tells us this is a certain kind of, uh, has a certain kind of force to it. Remember before they were, there was where Paul said in, in uh, earlier part, I think verse 12, he said, I ask you brothers. And so it's like a request and there's an urging of this. And now we've come to a place where these are commanded. And so we need to do them whether we want to or not. And so if, you know, when you have to obey, it's better to obey with your heart than it is to obey and be rebellious in your heart. Do you understand what I mean by that? I'm kind of trying to make that point. But this is our response to God in the world, and they are, they are things that are commanded. Look, look again at verse 16. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. Okay, these are the commands, and then they're followed by this little phrase, this is God's will for you. In Christ Jesus. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And I'm just going to address it now so that we um, have that in mind as we go through this. Sometimes we only attach this is God's will for you to the phrase give thanks always or in all circumstances. And we don't realize that these three things are parallel and this is God's will for you applies to all three of them. Okay? To pray continually, to rejoice always, and give thanks in all circumstances. All three of those are God's will for you. 
in Christ. Amen? Maybe this isn't super exciting. It's exciting to me because I've spent, uh, spent some time in this text, and it excites me to think about the possibilities of how our whole perspective could change if we get our heart behind doing what God has asked us to do here, and he will help us to do it. We're not just like reforming our behavior from the outside. What we're doing on the outside, God is already working on the inside, and so we're cooperating with him in this, but this is our response to God in the world and its circumstances in which we live. These have to do with how we relate to God in the world. In the world means that the way that things are and what happens may be like they were before we knew Christ. Like we go to this, a similar job and we're married to the same spouse, maybe before we came to Christ. We're, we have a lot of the similar circumstances. We still have to pay taxes. We still have to change flat tires. We still have to do uh, a lot of the things and got to put up with bad news and grumpy people and all of that, just like before. But now we're sitting from a different perspective, aren't we? Something's changed in us so that while those things are happening in the world, there's a sense in which we can rise above that because of what Christ has done in us. Remember, Paul said, uh, the world is crucified to me and I'm crucified to the world. As if there was some kind of detachment at which he said, I have to live in the world, but the life that I live is not my own. It's the life of Christ living in me. And it's all changed because of what Christ has done. It's God's call to us. And I think there's great hope in this that you don't have to be a victim in this world. Even when really bad things happen, we don't have to be victims because we have become victors in Christ. And I'm not talking about a plastic triumphalism where we have to have a fake smile all the time. I'm talking about that there is real victory despite how we feel in any given moment or what's happening. That's good news. So we respond to God in a certain way as a result of this. And so we should be different. You had a hard day before. You might have come home ready to cuss, tell everybody about your problems, gripe about how bad things are. You might have kicked the dog. But you wouldn't do that now because things are different. And this is possible because instead of griping, you give thanks. Instead of having a sour attitude where you want to cuss, you rejoice. Come on, right? And uh, instead of complaining to everybody, you give thanks in all circumstances. Things changed now because of our perspective, because of what God, what God has done. And I'd like, to, I'd like you to notice the first three of these commands are d- the do's. Um, people don't, don't often think of commands as what to do. They often think of commands as what not to do. And probably because the most famous commands in the Bible are, many of them are, do not do this. You shall not, right? But there's so many commands about what to do. And in fact, what we do determines what we don't do. And so because we're called of God, there's certain ways that we should live and certain things that we, we shouldn't do. And, and so thinking like that, that all things of these are things we shouldn't do, it causes us to live a life of constant protest. And the Christian life is as much about what we are as what we aren't. And what we do matters as least as much, if not more, as what we don't do. And so here it doesn't say, don't complain. It does say that in other places. But here it doesn't say that. Don't complain. It doesn't, uh, don't lean on alcohol to ease your problems. It doesn't say that here. It does say it in other places. Okay. Uh, don't get angry and shout at your family. It doesn't say that here. It says that in other places. There's a positive command in the place of these. These are, those, those things are wise don'ts, 
and you should you would find them in other places of the Bible, but here it tells us what we should do. And also, notice the actions are not limited to the right circumstances or the right times. Okay? Sometimes I think we're waiting for the right moment to act uh, to act well, and we'll do it if all the stars align and you know people act right towards us, and then we'll act right, and we feel pretty victorious in that. But this isn't conditional like that. This is a kind of default setting for the Christian, or it should be, in which we act this way regardless of things going on around us. Okay? Oftentimes we use the bad behavior of others or circumstances that happen as if, like, the universe is out to get us. Well, it kind of, in a way, it kind of is. It's a fallen world. It's under a curse. You, you understand what I mean by that? I don't mean to personify the universe. I'm just saying that when we try to live for God in a fallen world, we're fighting against resistance to live the Christian life. But you can be of good cheer because Jesus says, I've overcome the world. Okay, so I think that we uh, we need to understand that when um, we're to act this way, this these commands are a call for us to do these things in the total range of human experience. Always, notice the these are all-inclusive categories, always, continually or without ceasing, and in all circumstances in which we do these verbs. Okay, The verbs are modified by adverbs. Can we get a little bit nerdy for a moment? The, the adverbs tell us how we do our verbs. Okay, And the, the verbs are pray, um, rejoice, give thanks. The adverbs are always, continually, and in all circumstances or in all things. Okay, it tells us when. These are temporal adverbs. They tell us when we do them or what kind of circumstances surround that. And it's like everything. This is like Paul saying, okay, do these things in everything and at all times. Don't wait for the right moment. Make the moment right. This is the right moment to pray. This is the right moment to, to rejoice. This is the right moment to give thanks, regardless of what else might be happening. This is an important part of Christian living. It's important to understand this is the expectation for Christian living. I know it feels like I'm putting a heavy weight on us today, but what I, I'm suggesting to us, I think, will be liberating because you don't have to think of a response. You already know the response. In every circumstance, we give thanks to God. In every circumstance, we pray. In every circumstance, we can give thanks. And so there's a liberation in that, and God will help us to do this, and he'll help us to see the reason for it. Have you ever noticed that when you're little and your parents tell you to do something, you don't understand the reasons why? But if you trust them, you know they're watching out for your well-being. Anybody the kind of kid or you have a, a kid who wants to test the reason why you're saying it? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Like, you've said that, but I need to know why myself. The stove's hot. Don't touch it. I need to know the def your definition of hot. <laughs> so, you know what I mean? It, and life is so much simpler if we trust that those who love us and have our well-being at heart, if they're, they're giving us good wisdom, we just trust that and realize there may be a time we have to learn that by accident, but let's not be rebellious and put ourselves out there. I think there are some things in God, like this rejoice always, it may not fully make sense until we start doing it. You know, and we start doing it, we get in the middle of it, and we realize this is a whole better way to live. It changes our whole perspective on life, and it looks for the reasons to do these things, okay? And so 
This is the this is the view that his grace that at every time and circumstance is a place for gratitude, prayer, and thanksgiving. He says in verse sixteen, rejoice always. Rejoice means to be glad. Even and, and I know that maybe you'll you'll hear, you'll hear yourself mentally protest against this, but it's to be in a state of happiness. And um, you know, we like to create rigid categories, and so you'll say, and I, and I know this. Happiness is based on happenstance. Yeah, I know that. But what if the happenstance happens to be that the great God sent his son to die for you? That's a great happening. Okay, it's a reason to be happy, don't you think? And so there can be joy and happiness in that. But the whole point really is about the fact that we acknowledge our well-being. Remember, was it Catherine of Siena? It was one of the middle, middle. Uh, I was going to say middle age, but medieval mystics, I think, that said uh, all things shall be well and all things shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. Regardless of what happens, we shall be well. There's well-being in Christ. You're in his hand. Nothing can pluck you out of his hand. Okay? You're, you're secure in him. Okay? Trusting in him, it creates a whole different set of circumstances in which there is a sense in which nothing can ultimately touch you unless you let it. Rejoice always. And joy, it's a verb, so we don't let our joy remain latent, buried, asleep within us. I'm joyful. I'm joyful. We let our face know about it. We talk about it, right? It is expressed. Rejoicing is expressed joy. That's what it is. It's the expression of joy. And joy's expression comes because of our participation in the heavenly world. And you might think, well, that's in the future. No, there's, the truth of it is, is that we participate in the heavenly world now. We're seated, present tense, with him in heavenly places. Right now, there is a spiritual reality that you're alive to because you've said yes to Jesus. And that's exciting, even though we don't feel or recognize the full ramifications of that, is that we are in union with Christ even now. And this is what makes rejoicing possible. Rejoice always helps us to know when rejoicing should happen. It's at all times. Everybody can rejoice when life's good. It takes a special reason to rejoice all the time. And we know that God has done something lasting and important that's greater than all of our trials. That's a reason to rejoice, that he is even working within our troubles to share with us his goodness and glory. Jesus talked to his disciples right before he went to the cross and he said to them, um, so with you, now is your time for grief, okay? They're going to experience a time of grief, and I think he's talking about the grief that they'll experience when their momentary hopes are dashed because Jesus is going to the cross, and they don't, they don't fully absorb that, right? And so he's warning them about this. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, he says, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. And he contrasts them with the world. The world can't rejoice in that way. They don't have the same reason for joy. And by the world, he means all those without the hope of Jesus who are yet waiting to hear the gospel and respond to it. We rejoice because we're aware that this world, with all of its fading joys and sorrows, um, is not all that we have. It's not. When I was a kid, I didn't like school, and, and, and I'm putting this in a really watered-down version, but hopefully we can see a perspective from it. When I was a kid, I didn't like school, but my parents made me go anyway. 
Anybody else? <laughs> Always at the end of a semester, uh, just before the break of either Christmas or summer, uh, there's a lot of more difficult, tiresome, dreary things that you had to do. Teachers call that work and testing, right? And that's what we had to do, those things. And the last 30 minutes before a school holiday seemed like the longest age in the world, didn't it? So I was experiencing school and other tribulations like that. But I still had joy in my heart because I knew what I had on the other side of the bell. Right? You know, Christmas is coming. Uh, that's almost sad to think about. We've got to wait a whole other year. Some of you are so glad about that. You're like, wait, can't wait for Christmas to be over because we can get back to normal living. Uh, but think about summer. I don't know if you remember those last few days of spring. And it was about time for summer to come and school would be out. And you would experience the joys of riding your bike and getting in trouble with your friends and doing all of that. And so I was able to endure some of those final tribulations because I knew of what awaited me. The joys that awaited me. I didn't have to get up. No more books. I think there's a, an Alice Cooper song about that somewhere I probably shouldn't listen to. But school's out for summer. So I wonder, you know, now I look back from adulthood and it wasn't as bad as I imagined it to be. I could probably sit through and endure all that again. Uh, and I wonder if from eternity, if we'll not think to ourselves that we were like children. Had we only known what we would have. Um, maybe we would be able to rejoice in it. If we'd only known what we have now, we would have rejoiced in it when we were going through it. And so we're to rejoice all the time whether things are going well or not. Look at verse 17 there. It says, pray continually. Continually means not not ceasing from a continuous activity. Okay, uh, We should have a life of uninterrupted prayer. Okay, I don't know if you know what that looks like, and we can make some weird extremes out of this. We might imagine ourselves um, that we run around uh, praying and doing nothing else, like we go around muttering prayers nonstop. And um, that's not really, I think, what Paul has in mind. It means something more like live a life of prayer, okay? that we're, we're in constant dialogue with God. This is not limited to physical posture. Like we don't have to be kneeling when we pray, and it doesn't have to wait for a certain time. Like we don't have to just wait for Sundays and Wednesdays to pray. We should be praying all the time, right? If you're praying what Sunday... Man, you got to get connected to the life source. You need to pray every day and all the time, as a matter of fact. Uh, it's not limited by physical posture or time or a certain place. Like we got to get to our prayer closet or to the church altar or wherever. We can pray anywhere. We have an ongoing talk with God who is always with us in the Holy Spirit. You might have a time where you pray formally, and that's great. This is talking about taking the life of prayer beyond the prayer closet. You understand that prayer closet is great. You're, we're praying beside your bed, wherever it is that you have your your daily prayers. Understand that th the life of prayer goes beyond that, and that's what God's call is. Aren't you thankful that you don't have to wait to get to a place in order to pray? We can. We don't have to wait for a time like God's available from three to five on Thursday, and you can call on Him then. But uh, He's dealing with other continents at other times of the week. No, you can call upon Him any time, and 
we should pray all the time. You should pray when you're driving. Probably your spouse prays when you're driving, and you should pray when you're driving, but keep your eyes open when you do it. It's funny that the posture of prayer has often become kind of fixed to a stationary life. We often say, bow your head and close your eyes and pray. Hold your hands and pray. And Jesus in Luke chapter, I think it's chapter 10, where he feeds the 5,000. Do you remember it says that he lifted, he lifted up his eyes towards heaven? He prayed with eyes open? Oh, he just kicked over a sacred cow. We can pray with our eyes open. In fact, I think a lot of times we need to pray with our eyes open. We need to pray watching for the miracle. We need to pray looking to the need and seeing, has the need been met? We need to pray in moments where we can't close our eyes because there's something we need, something else we need to be doing at the same time. So their prayers are like that. And Jesus broke the bread and he um, fed the 5,000 with his eyes open. And it made a difference. In Bible college, I had a professor who started all of his prayers like this. And now, Father, dot, dot, dot. And now, Father. And it was unique because I'd never heard that before. But it brought out that he had just talked about something with the Lord, and now something new needed to be talked about. And now, Father. And so we weren't there for the previous prayer. It was at the end of a class or in the beginning of the class, and he would just start in, and let's pray. And now, Father. And then he would pray this prayer, and you got a sense that he had a running dialogue with God. He was praying about the next thing in his day as if the prayer life had continued on and on. You see, things can change in a moment. We're constantly in need of him for wisdom and courage and perspective and attitude and for people that we know that are in need. And God's, God's constant nearness means that at any time we can talk to him. And there are all kinds of prayers. Certainly we know that there's intercession and um, there are prayers of thanksgiving and different things and kind of hints at that here. But this word for prayer, when it says pray, uh, unceasingly or pray continually suggests a petitionary prayer. It's, it's uh, a word that would suggest petitioning God as if you're calling upon him for your needs. And I wouldn't limit it to that, but Paul might be saying to believers, you should pray all the time for all kinds of things that you need and other people around you need. And so we have access to approach God with all of our needs. And what that says when we do it is that we believe that God is active within our world and the circumstances in our world and that he acts because of our prayer. Do you believe that? Or is prayer some arbitrary thing that we're asked to do and it never matters? I think it matters. I think God asks us to do something that matters when he calls upon us to pray continually, that we participate in this. There's a great essay by C.S. Lewis called uh, Prayer and Work, and it talks about two facets of accomplishing things within our world, that there is prayer and there is work. And the, both of them overlap. We do both. We, we pray, but we also get up and we share the gospel with people. We pray that they'll be saved, but we also, we also share the gospel with them. And uh, we pray for our kids to come to know Jesus, but we also teach them what the things of God are, right? So there's prayer and, they, and there's work and they go together. And so there's, there's all kinds of prayer, but this is probably the kind of petitionary prayer, and it's a privilege that we have as sons and daughters of God. Verse 18 says, give thanks in all circumstances, not just to be thankful, um, but to express appreciation for benefits and blessings. So we need to be thankful, but, but once again, 
thankfulness or gratitude can be some kind of attitude that is latent within us. But to be thankful in this way is to express it. Okay? And I would suggest to you that it's good to get all, all, all of us on board, not just our thoughts and say thank you in our mind, but what if we said it out loud? If we heard ourselves say it, thank you, God, for sparing me. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for this food. Thank you for my family. Thank you that this circumstance could have destroyed me but didn't because you're involved and you're seeing to it that all things work together for, for the good of my life. The good, not meaning what I want, but his good. You understand the difference? Sometimes his good for us is different from what we want for ourselves. So he's working all things out towards an eternal good in us. And I, I want to encourage you in that to give thanks in all these circumstances. Okay? Um, we all know that the trouble will not be greater than the triumph, and so we can express thanks. And I don't think that this means that we give thanks for every circumstance. You can take me to task on that, or you may differ on opinion. I don't think it means give thanks for every circumstance, but that through every circumstance God is working, and we can be thankful for what it produces. You understand that if you break your arm, oh, I'm so glad, Lord, you let me break my arm. No, it's not like that. That's ridiculous. It's, Lord, you, you go and you get the, your arm set at the doctor and the nurse is there and you witness to her. Thank God, Lord, that through this, you gave me opportunity to minister to somebody else. You see how that can kind of work is that it's not, being, it's not being grateful that bad things happen. It's being grateful that in spite of bad things happening, God still works and accomplishes his purpose. And I think we can be uh, grateful for that. I remember reading uh, a few years ago, it's probably been 20 now. Corey Ten Boom's The Hiding Place. Anybody read that before? The Hiding Place? Raise your hand high. You get an applause. All right. Good job. Reading good Christian books is awesome. And Corey Ten Boom talks about in The Hiding Place, they were hiding, um, they were hiding Jews from the Nazis. And uh, they got caught doing it, and so they got sent to a, her and her sister and her father got sent to, a con- to concentration camps and they went to a concentration camp, and she and her sister were in this bunkhouse, and it was full of uh, fleas and lice and all the nasty parasites that uh, we don't even like to talk about. It makes our skin crawl. And her sister was sharing. They had a Bible that they had been hiding. And uh, when the guards weren't around, they would share from the Scripture with those who were with them in the prison camp. And her sister said, we need to give thanks in all circumstances, and and I think it was Corey that said, even the lice and the bugs, yeah, we want to give thanks even in that. And uh, what they realized was, she said, because of these parasites, those guards won't come in here. Because those guards won't come in here, we can share the scriptures and pray together in fellowship. And so they found in that difficulty a reason for giving thanks. One of the ways that this is defined is rendering thanks. And I always think of when rendering, uh, I think of rendering fat, okay? This is gross, but sometimes there are things that are fatty, and you need to boil them down, and it makes something that can be useful, like a, a grease or something. And I think sometimes we need to boil down our circumstance and understand there's something valuable that can be gained even in the worst of things, and we can give thanks in those things. And then it says, for this is the will of God for you in Christ. For explains the reason why we should do these things. It's God's will for us. It's God's will for us. And 
Um, I think it goes beyond that, but Paul is saying to these new Christians, this is the reason to give thanks. God wants you to do that, and it's good for you. He doesn't want us to do things that will destroy us, but things that are good for us, and so it's the reason. Paul almost never plainly says when he's giving moral instruction, this is God's will, okay? It's almost always implied. When he's given moral instruction, it's almost always implied. The exception is when he says, this command is not from the Lord, but from me. He does that on a couple occasions. But otherwise, it's implied this command is from the Lord. So when he says it, you know there's weight to it. He's saying, look, pay attention. This is God's will for you in Christ. It's not just assume that it's God's will. He's going to plainly state it. And so he emphasized these are the natural outworkings of the view that God is in the world and as Christians uh, we need to respond to him in the appropriate way, no matter what the circumstance or the time is. And mindset matters. Our view of God is that God has been working in the world and in us for good. He will be working in the world and through us, uh, in us through prayer, and is working in the world and in us through circumstances, both bad and good. And God works through all these things. Uh, though I would suggest, in, in my view, he doesn't cause all things, but like he doesn't cause the evil actions of people, but it still can be a place where he can work. You understand that even if God doesn't isn't the direct cause of it, he can still take what was meant for evil and turn it to good. Think Joseph there. Where God and what you intended for evil, God has turned to good. And so he turns situations around, and that doesn't excuse the evil that's been done. Um, I don't have time for this, but if you want a good illustration of this, I would consider Judah and Tamar, how Judah approached someone that he thought was a prostitute, which is kind of a terrible thing. turns out to be his daughter-in-law. There was a mutual trickery that was happening there. And they have uh, twin children out of that liaison. And one of them comes to be the child that's in the line of the Messiah. So all of that was really messed up, and yet, and yet God turned it to good. I don't have time to, to talk about that more, but uh, it's a really interesting story. So what we do with these uh, three commands might show what we really think about God. If we don't rejoice, maybe we can't perceive of God's victory over evil. And if we don't, pay, if we don't pray, maybe it's because we don't think that God responds to his children. And if we don't give thanks, maybe we don't believe God works through all things or that things can be good in the end. We can know the will of God. And it doesn't have to be mysterious. In fact, almost everything said in this portion of Scripture is very practical. Do this, don't do that. And it doesn't have to be mysterious to be God's will. So let's do what we know. Do you know, a lot of God's will has been plainly revealed to us. We're out there in mystery land searching out the deep mysteries of God. Like, what is his will for me concerning which pair of shoes I should buy? Look, we know what God's will is, the majority of God's will. And he probably doesn't care what shoes you buy. I'll let that stand. You think about it. But he does care whether we rejoice or not. Okay, so that matters more about our character than about that. Maybe he cares like, oh, those are nice red shoes that you're wearing today, but not in the sense that it should take priority over the things that are plainly revealed. We can't know the will of God. And if we're not living like this, it's because uh, we're not living within the fullness of God's will for us. And we may have to deal with the reason, but these verses aren't concerned with the reason why. It just tells us what we should do. 
and it instructs us, do these things. Pray without ceasing, rejoice in everything, in all circumstances, give thanks. That is how we respond to God in a really messy world. Okay? And it is really messy. It's not trying to hide that. It's a fallen world. But still, you know, we can make excuses for ourselves. Well, I just didn't give thanks today because I had a really bad day. Well, that's the time to do it, isn't it? In those things. Otherwise, what will our response be? Fleshly and satanic. Like complaining. Have you ever thought about this? Complaining is kind of an opposite to prayer. Complaining is telling everybody who has no power to do anything about it what your problems are. Prayer is telling the God who can do everything about it what your problems are. Okay? See how those kind of get messed up and we get our directions wrong? We need to live Godward. All right? Um, If I have time, we're going to get through this as quick as possible. Our response to the Spirit in our midst. When you um, come to know Jesus... The Bible says the Spirit of God comes and dwells within you, okay? And that's true of every believer, that you're indwelt by the Spirit of God. That's not exactly the same thing as being filled with the Spirit of God, in my understanding. But you're indwelt by the Spirit of God. Every believer, if you don't have the Spirit of God, Paul says, then you don't belong to Christ, okay? So that means every believer, the Holy Spirit comes and resides within you, become an Ark of the Covenant, a transportive place where God's presence dwells. Every, every believer is that way. And so we should understand that if God dwells within us individually, and it says your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians, and it says in another place that you collectively, in a plural way, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So what, ha- what is true of us individually is true of us when we come together. The Spirit dwells in our midst. He's here today. I'm hoping that what is being said here is he's inspired to say it, and he's applying it to our situation, but he wants to speak. So look at verse 19 through 22 where it says, Don't quench the Spirit. Don't treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold to what's good. Reject every kind of evil. When the Spirit of God is active among the people of God, there's wonderful benefits, you know. There's a sense of his presence. There's a, a stronger community that's here. There's power for spiritual living and spiritual work. Uh, there's growth in knowledge and grace. People will come to know God through us if the Spirit of God is working within us. The kids will know that God is real. And among us, when I grew up, um, I grew up with a sense that God was present with us. And there was no question in my mind whether I was going to go do anything else other than serve him. Now, it, I wasn't going to be a pastor, that took a special urge from the Holy Spirit, a special nudge to do that. But but I always knew this is real. I had a sense this is real. And I think there are probably some kids out there that they're not walking with God right now, but they have a deep sense that this is real. And it's because God's presence has been among a people. And um, we will live our lives in worship that our lives are for him when his pre- his spirit is active among us. In fact, one reason some think that we're not seeing miracles today, some some people think that, that we don't see miracles today or we the miracles aren't possible today is because they belong to the apostolic age as proofs for the message, okay? The proofs for the message that um, would show that this is true until it took off, until until the apostles died, until we got the scriptures, 
And and I would just ask us to consider this. If the gifts of the Spirit, is the gift of the Spirit or the gifts of the Spirit active today? If they aren't, then there's so much that we don't share with the first century believers. Do you realize that? That if the, if the gifts of the Spirit are not available today, there's a lot that we don't share with the first century believers, including a lot of instruction in Scripture. There's a lot of instruction in Scripture that deals with these things. Do that, does that apply to us or no? And that, that would trouble me. If the Spirit is, isn't working like this, then what do we do with this verse about prophecy that we just read? There's no place in Scripture that plainly states that miracles will cease before the coming of Christ. 1 Corinthians 13 doesn't say miracles will cease when the Bible comes. Paul is referring to the appearing of Christ. Is then we will know face-to-face. We don't, we don't necessarily come to face-to-face encounter with the Bible. It's the coming of Christ. And then we'll know, and, and gifts of knowledge and the other gifts will pass away because it will no longer be necessary in the coming kingdom, you understand. And then uh, there has been also miracles documented through church history, including the modern world. Uh, I think it's Ronald Kidd, who was a Canadian uh, author. He writes Miracles Through the Centuries. Uh, he wrote Healing Through the Maybe it's Roger Stronstad. If you're interested, come see me. We'll get you the reference to the book. But um, Miracles Through the Centuries, it's documented. I think it is Ronald Kidd. It's documented how um, miracles have taken place in the early church and beyond that. And even till now, people are documenting that these things are taking place. And some of some people here have experienced the miraculous. Do you, if you're a believer in Christ, you need to understand you've experienced the miraculous. But I'm talking about uh, like wonders and signs that have happened that show us of God's nearness and his presence. And some of you have been healed and some of you have been seen miraculous deliverances in one way or another or um, in some way God spoke to you. I remember one night I was at uh, um, my office when we were in Kansas as youth pastors and I just got this sudden prompting. It came with these words, you need to go home. And uh, so I got up and I, like an eerie feeling crept over me, but it was words, you need to go home. And so I went home and I came back the next morning to meet my brother for some work that we were doing at the church. And somebody had broken into my office. Apparently, somebody escaped from the local prison, was hiding in a place near the window to my office, and broke in and stole a bunch of missions funds out of a jar that we had kept in that office and some other things. Well, here's the, the cool part is that God spared me. I just went home, and I didn't have to confront all of that, whatever that would have looked like. But not only that, they caught the guy next door at 7-Eleven, and they took from him a bunch of money that he had because they knew he had stolen it from the church. And I think they returned more money <laughs> than what he had taken. So apparently he had stolen from somebody else, but it helped our mission fund. So praise praise be to Jesus. Miracles, miracles do happen unwillingly, I'm sure, from him. But there are miracles that are documented. Why don't we see more miracles? I need to hurry on with this, but let me mention some reasons. Maybe we one reason is that we're not practicing verse 17, pray always. Maybe one of the reasons we don't see more of the miraculous is that we don't pray always. Maybe we're not praying the prayer of Acts 4.30, stretch out your hand, O Lord, to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus, like the apostles prayed in Acts chapter 4. Maybe we aren't earnestly desiring 
spiritual gifts, one of which is the pl- double plural gifts of healings in 1 Corinthians 14. But it tells us there that we're to earnestly desire spiritual gifts. Would you ask yourself, when's the last time you prayed that God would use you in a, a, a supernatural gifting? My guess is that probably a lot of us haven't prayed that prayer lately. Maybe we're trying to possess the gifts for our own self-importance. Like we want to have gifts, but we want them to be our gifts. We want to use them for our own aggrandizement. We want to be the guy or the lady who has the gift. And maybe we have an unrealistic expectation of miracle a miracle a minute instead of the miracle being for the mission of Christ. And so if we want to if we want to just follow miracles to see miracles, God's not into doing parlor tricks. He's into saving souls. And the miraculous is for the extension of his purposes, not so that we can stand amazed exclusively, so that we who are already in the family can stand around and say, wow, isn't it really cool to see miracles? No, it's for more than that. It's for God's purpose. So where there's something real, you can bank on the fact that Satan will counterfeit it and people will hijack it for their own gain. Um, There was an equivalent in paganism in Paul's day. One of the things that we see uh, in Paul's day is that people prophesied during that time, and they called it ecstasy. You could probably read a little bit about the oracles of Delphi where somebody fell under a trance, or you know of the fortune-telling spirit that rested upon the little girl in Philippi. They say that she had a spirit of python, which is a fortune-telling spirit. And so there was an, a pagan equivalent of prophecy, but it's a counterfeit that the enemy used to lead people astray. A lot of times, like the oracles of Delphi, they were, they were so bizarre and vague that you could apply them any which way. And the trick was that if you apply, applied it wrongly, then the one giving the prophecy would say, well, you just misunderstood it. And so there was a loophole that got them out of that. So there is a fake, and there's a fake today. Um, in fact, you know, I think we were at Hierapolis in, in uh, Turkey, and uh, they said that, there were some of the prophets of Pluto, which is Hades, that dwelt in this place where there was an opening in the earth and there were some kind of gases that were coming up out of the earth. And the prophets there would gather around this little temple and they would, they would see things and they would have hallucinations. Well, my guess is they're getting high off whatever gas was coming out of the earth and they were prophesying out of that. And no doubt there was demonic influence, but there's some reasons for those things happening. And I've been around this Pentecostalism my whole life, and I've seen the good, the bad, and the weird. Um, People having a word for you wasn't unusual. When I was a kid, I was always scared that God was going to tell somebody the wrong things I was doing. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Somebody was going to get the good, the news on you, the, the, juicy tidbits, and they were going to confront you publicly with all of your <laughs> all of your sin. And what that showed me is that I really believe this, I believe this is real, that, and I still do believe this is real. I think the, uh, and I wasn't doing anything beyond normal childhood shenanigans, whatever they were, but I think the Spirit of God can still speak through us to the world, the church, and at times to individuals. And so what I'm about to say needs to be understood in that balance. Not everything that's called prophecy is prophecy. And we can bank on that. I, I can, I, you can bank on that. If you need scripture, then I would encourage you to look at Jeremiah 7 and 23, 
where Jeremiah calls out the prophets of Judah and says, you guys are prophesying out of your own imagination. Okay, they do that. People do that. And sometimes they have nefarious reasons, and sometimes people are just so hungry, they want something that if they're not getting it, they try with all of their might to grasp for something, and sometimes I think they make it up. And what we want is not that. We want what's real. There is a real message from God. Um, we want a message that is really from God. You look at 1 Corinthians uh, 14, and it tells us where uh, Christian prophets need to have their message carefully evaluated. And uh, it tells us a little bit about the instrument to do that. But it says here, don't quench the spirit in verse 19. Look at verse 19. Don't quench the spirit. These are instructions that still apply today. The Bible still says don't quench the spirit. And the metaphor is carried by translations with either quench and some use stifle. The New English translation says don't extinguish. I think that probably is missing a little bit of it. Um, we're intended to think of a fire that is caused to die down, not go out completely. Okay, The spirit does not go out, but we can limit his effects in our midst. Okay, And that's what this is talking about. Somehow uh, we're pouring water on the fire of the Holy Spirit. The New Testament says we're to fan into flame the spirit, not to quench the Holy Spirit. So the spirit won't be diminished, but his effects in our life can be reduced. You know, when you pour water on a fire and it dies down, both heat and light subside. And that's what would happen in our midst is that heat in, in terms of like the passion and the love for God, that can subside, but also the knowledge of God can begin to diminish because the Spirit of God illuminates the Scripture and, uh, and teaches us what God is trying to say. So this little verse says a lot. First, the Spirit of God should be active in God's people. This is the normal way it should be. And I don't mean that um, by what you are, I expect that the Spirit of God should be active in that way. But in the way that He wants to work, there should be a freedom for the Holy Spirit to work. We should not be suspicious of the Holy Spirit. Come on, are you with me? Like, if the Spirit wants to work, let's not be suspicious of Him, but recognize that what He has for us is good. We trust the Father. He loves us. We trust Jesus. He died for us. But do we trust the Holy Spirit to work? He wants to work among us. Second, it says the Spirit of God can be limited in His effect by God's people. He can be resisted, probably because we want our own way instead of God's way. Maybe because we don't want to share glory. Uh, maybe because he, he won't share His glory with another personality, that He won't continue to pour Himself out in that way. And it could be that we just aren't listening. Man, one way to stifle what the Spirit wants to do is if we just ignore Him. There's a lot of ways that we can quench the Spirit, but Paul gives a specific way here. way of quenching the Spirit is by despising His voice. So look at verse 20. We've got to move quickly here, but verse 20 says, Don't treat prophecies with contempt. This is still the Word of God. You agree? It's for New Testament believers. Agree? Okay, what does this mean if prophecy doesn't continue. Prophecies here are not referring to end-time prophecies. They're not talking about preaching in general. This is best understood as speech inspired by the Holy Spirit, speaking on behalf of God's Spirit with the help of His Spirit. So um, I've said before that I think that we're called in, under the, in the age of the Spirit to be voices for God in this world. And so he can speak through us. And so we speak on behalf of his spirit, but through 
the help of his spirit. You might be a little nervous with this, but keep these things in mind. Number one, the Holy Spirit is the one who is speaking when this gift of prophecy is the real thing. It's the Holy Spirit that's wanting to speak. And so we are um, offering our voice to the Spirit's will. Okay? The second thing is that the Holy Spirit inspires a person for that moment. It doesn't make everything they say prophetic. Come on, hear this caution. Just because somebody is right one time, look at the old old prophet and the new prophet. Remember the, um, the old-timey prophet in the Old Testament who got the younger prophet not to obey God's voice and he got eaten by a lion? That prophet was right, and he was also wrong. So you can be right and wrong. We have to treat each prophecy with a separate examination. Okay? That's important to understand. So not everybody who is, if they have the title prophet, doesn't mean everything they say is right. Okay? The third thing is the Holy Spirit is giving practical knowledge that will challenge and strengthen the church. This is not about saying the weirdest things. This is about God giving practical instruction that will help and benefit the body of Christ to be more what it should be. Amen? So we don't have to be in fear of that. And then the fourth thing is the Holy Spirit will not contradict Scripture um, that he is the author of. Okay? So we don't need to worry that something like there's a new doctrine being developed because somebody has prophesied. No, that's the wrong way of viewing this. But somebody saying that they heard something from God carries a lot of weight to it if you take these things seriously. Sometimes God said can be used for manipulation, even if the motive isn't ultimately evil. It can be used to give weight to our own words. Remember Jesus said, don't swear by heaven or earth. That's giving weight to our words. If you say God said in order to make your words have more weight to them, that's wrong. Come on. Let's evaluate ourselves because sometimes we want God to have said something. But he didn't say it, but we wish he had. And we can give him that credit. And there's something wrong in that. Um, no one who fears God wants to go against God. People who don't understand the weight of this can misuse the name of God, and it makes them look like they have a closer relationship or connection, and it can be a way of justifying actions that you don't want anybody to challenge you on. It can give you power and influence over others, and some people are using it for money or worse to lead people into bondage. So what, a, what, what can we do in response to that? It's telling us, on the one hand, don't treat prophecy with contempt. What can we do? Contempt here has a range of meaning which covers everything from treating them as unimportant to rejecting it with contempt. Now, it's not saying every prophecy. It's saying the institution of prophecy. Don't treat it like as if it doesn't matter and don't despise it. Okay, That's the range of the meaning of this word. Don't treat it with contempt. Uh, that means that we have to take it seriously, but we should do something about it. And so the challenge shows that we need to um, take this seriously. It's a gift that even is for today, and it can be misused. But it says that we're to test them all. Test here is to try to learn the genuineness of something by examination. You feel a little bit unspiritual doing these things. Somebody says, thus saith the Lord, or they speak out in a prophetic word, and you're like, I need to think about that. And some people say, that's unspiritual. Well, it's scriptural. How can it be unspiritual? to test these things, to test them. The Bible says to do it. In fact, test is not only a safety valve in case of emergency, 
Paul commands it here. This is a command. Test is a, an imperative, which means you're instructed by the Holy Spirit to test words that are supposed prophecy. Did you know that? That ought to, that ought to liberate us to be able to evaluate the reality of these kinds of things. Testing uh, takes place uh, in several facets when it comes to the leading of the Spirit of God. Number one is Scripture. Okay, always test by the Scripture because the Scripture is more objective even than our own ability to hear the voice of the Spirit. Okay, we have we have something here in black and white. If it contradicts this, we can know that for sure. We can hear the voice of the Spirit, but sometimes we're not very good at it. And so I'm going to put that as a secondary one. The Spirit of God knows how to speak in order to get our attention, but sometimes we misinterpret what's said. And so we have to be careful to first place Scripture above it all. Okay? I would encourage you with that. And then the Spirit of God will give us help in this regard. There's a specific gift, which we won't have time to talk about, but I'll talk just for a second about it. And then um, spiritual counsel. Okay, we need other people around us that are mature believers to run things past and to talk about them. Okay, let the prophet speak. First Corinthians fourteen says, and let the others judge. We weigh through these things, and then um, sanctified reason. Okay, I don't mean you come with your worldly thinking and go, well, that doesn't seem right. I'm talking about when our mind is set on the things of God. He has given us reason to weigh through these things. Our minds come into play, and that's not unspiritual either. In fact, First uh, Corinthians, excuse me, Acts 15 follows this exact pattern when it comes to the decision about circumcision and the Gentiles. If you look at it in verses 6 through 14, they gather together for a spiritual council. Verses 15 through 18, they rely upon Scripture. Verse 19 through 21, sanctified reason, it seemed good to us and to the Holy Spirit. And then 28, um, the Spirit of God. So these are ways of testing a particular prophecy. Testing is not unspiritual. That's not a way to quench the Spirit. It's commanded. A way to quench the Spirit is to say, well, sometimes it's not good. We're throwing out the whole institution. Okay? One gift that in particular is given for this is the discerning of spirits. I used to think discerning of spirits meant the ability to see demons. That's when I was a kid, I thought that. And I've come to understand that this is, the, this is a spirit-given um, gift for a particular moment that you can help discern whether what is said is from the Spirit of God, whether it's motivated by the human, whether it's demonically inspired. And so this is a particular gift that relates to that. If you want to know more about that, chapter... Uh, 12, verse 10, uh, 1 Corinthians. We'll talk more about that. But testing is further divided into two responses, and we can quickly go through this. It says, hold on to what is good. Hold on means to faithfully keep believing and acting on what's good. Somebody prophesies, you wade through it, you test it, and you ask those questions that are important. What's the Spirit of God saying on this? What is Scripture saying on this? What is good counsel saying on this? What am, what am I thinking about this? You're going through that rubric. And then you it, you come out and you might find some of that is is really good. Okay, Hold on to it. Keep it faithfully. Okay, Let that become a part of who you are. And then it says on the other side of this that we're to um, 
reject every kind of evil. You might have uh, your translation, avoid the very appearance of evil. This verse has been taken out of context and made to mean something that, something like, don't ever look like you're doing something wrong. Okay, flee the very appearance. Flee even looking like you're doing something wrong. But that's not the contextual meaning. The contextual meaning here is in prophecy, when something good comes, the alternative to hold on, the opposite of that is to reject. It's a, in fact, it's the exact same word, but in the negative. So it'd be like, um, instead of hold on here, it's keep your distance from. It uses the same word, but it puts an A in front of it. You know how you're, you have your theists, the people that believe in God, and you have your atheists, people who don't believe in God, puts an A in front of it. And it tells us, don't hold on to these things that are evil. If prophecy comes and something comes out of it that's destructive and harmful, don't have anything to do with that. Cling to what's good, flee the appearance of evil. And so when it comes to discerning these things, it's a little like the principle that you use when you're eating chicken. You eat the meat and you spit out the bones, right? And that when it comes to prophecy, there's a similar thing here. We hear what's said and we receive it, but we reject every form of evil. It's not unspiritual to test prophecies. It's unspiritual to dismiss them without consideration. And so there's freedom in this to let the Spirit of God work. Prophecy shouldn't be viewed as threatening or spiritually dangerous. Okay, that's one extreme. It's a good gift. It's given by the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 14.1 says we ought to eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit, especially, listen, especially prophecy. Have we been praying for God to use us in this way or to work in our midst? Do we want to hear his voice? I wanted to say this. I think it's really important to hear. Um, prophecy, even in the Old Testament, is, is not um, creating new doctrine. Okay? In the Old Testament, when the prophets prophesied, they were applying Torah in a sp- specific circumstance. And that's what prophecy is often doing. It's it's taking the truths of God already revealed and it's applying them in a specific situation so that we can live in the light of them. So when a word of prophecy comes, if it goes off and says, there's not three in the Trinity, there's four, write that off right away. Are you with me? But if it says something like, God is good and you need to trust him and you need to take this step of faith, then we need to evaluate that and say, okay, this this could be from God and maybe he's encouraging us to live in light of the revelation he's already given. I pray, uh, two guys prayed for me this morning. I said, pray that I'll preach fast. I have 15 pages of notes. And uh, normally eight's a good sermon length. And we just came to the conclusion, aren't you happy? I'm thrilled. These instructions have to do with relating to God in the world and the spirit in our midst. And so let me deal with these for a second. We'll respond. Okay. The first has to do with a view of the Christian life that's Godward. Our lives should be lived Godward. Why don't you stand with me and that will remind me we're closing here. Being aware of him and understanding what he's done is and is doing and will do for us uh, changes how we live. Turning us from malcontents to rejoicers. Are you a rejoicer or are you a malcontent? Are you a malcontent or are you a prayer? Are you one who prays, or are you a thanks? Are you a, a thanksgiver? <laughs> I couldn't resist. I had to make those words up. But we may need to change our thinking, or it may 
take a, as little as just deciding that you're going to do these things because doing them will affect how you think. The prescription is the cure, okay? So maybe you want to come and set these things right. And like, God, I've been a complain, a complainer, and I've not lived in the world in a way that honors you by giving thanks and praying and rejoicing in all things. I've been complaining and um, just malcontent about everything. And I want to see you change that. This is a good time to do that today is to make an altar at your seat or come to the altar here and say, Lord, change my view. I want to say thank you. Maybe you're already in that mindset and you just want to express thanks today. The altar is a good place to do that. The second part of this has to do with our openness to the working of the Spirit in our midst. It might be that all this sounds a little strange. And it's right here in the Bible and it has safeguards for it. But really, shouldn't we be praying and asking God for more of his presence and his voice in our midst? I, I don't want cold, dead religion. I don't think you do either. We want the spirit to burn in our midst. And in that burning, we're going to find conviction, conviction of sin, conviction about the deep things of God and passion for God, light in the knowledge of God. Maybe we need to respond by laying down some prejudices against the supernatural. Like one prejudice is God doesn't do it anymore, but I don't think that's probably many people here. The second prejudice is, God, you can't use me in those things. We need to lay that down because he can use anybody. Come on. Anybody else encouraged by the fact that the donkey spoke to Balaam? Like, come on. He can speak through a donkey if we'll just... (laughs) let him he'll speak to us he'll speak through us so maybe we need to lay down some prejudice and say to him holy spirit you're welcome here and really mean it so i don't know maybe the lord's been speaking your heart about something but i'd love to invite you to respond if you don't yet know jesus as savior and lord he died on the cross for your sins and he loves you he wants you to know him and uh, you can simply come to him by saying lord be merciful to me a sinner and do it for Jesus' sake. And that can be the beginning of a long, eternal friendship with God. And so respond to him in the way that God's leading you. Let's take a few moments before we leave. I think we'd be wrong to, to leave without taking a few minutes to respond to the Lord. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to worship you. We thank you that you're active in the world, in our world, in our troubles, in our good times. And we acknowledge that you're there, and we want to always have your praise on our lips. We want to always be in conversation with you. And we ask, Lord, your Holy Spirit would be present among us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. May God bless you. joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you're blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.